How Religion May Be an Embodiment of Reason by George Sanayana. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Philip Beard. Experience has repeatedly confirmed that well-known maxim of Bacon's that a little philosophy inclineth man's mind to atheism, but depth in philosophy bringeth men's minds about to religion. In every age, the most comprehensive thinkers have found in the religion of their time and country something they could accept, interpreting and illustrating that religion so as to give it depth and universal application. Even the heretics and atheists, if they have had profundity, turn out after a while to be forerunners of some new orthodoxy. What they rebel against is a religion alien to their nature. They are atheists only by accident, and relatively to a convention which inwardly offends them. But they yearn mightily in their own souls after the religious acceptance of a world interpreted in their own fashion. So it appears in the end that their atheism and loud protestation were in fact the hastier part of their thought since what emboldened them to deny the poor world's faith was that they were too impatient to understand it. Indeed, the enlightenment common to young wits and worm-eaten old satirists who plume themselves on detecting the scientific ineptitude of religion, something which the blindest half see, is not nearly enlightened enough. It points to notorious facts incompatible with religious tenets literally taken, but it leaves unexplored the habits of thought from which those tenets sprang their original meaning, and their true function. Such studies would bring the skeptic face to face with the mystery and pathos of mortal existence. They would make him understand why religion is so profoundly moving and, in a sense, so profoundly just. There must needs be something humane and necessary in an influence which has become the most general sanction of virtue, the chief occasion for art and philosophy, and the source, perhaps, of the best human happiness. If nothing, as Hooker said, is so malapert as a splenetic religion, a sour irreligion is almost as perverse. At the same time, when Bacon penned the sage epigram we've quoted, he forgot to add that the God to whom depth in philosophy brings back men's minds is far from being the same from whom a little philosophy estranges them. It would be pitiful indeed if mature reflection bred no better conceptions than those which have drifted down the muddy stream of time where tradition and passion have jumbled everything together. Traditional conceptions, when they are felicitous, may be adopted by the poet, but they must be purified by the moralist and disintegrated by the philosopher. Each religion, so dear to those whose life it sanctifies, and fulfilling so necessary a function in the society that has adopted it, necessarily contradicts every other religion and probably contradicts itself. What religion a man shall have is an historical accident, quite as much as what language he shall speak. In the rare circumstances where a choice is possible, he may with some difficulty make an exchange, but even then he is only adopting a new convention, which may be more agreeable to his personal temper, but which is essentially as arbitrary as the old. To speak without speaking any particular language is not more hopeless than the attempt to have a religion that shall be no religion in particular, 
A courier's or a dragoman's speech may indeed be often unusual and drawn from disparate sources, not without some mixture of personal originality, but that private jargon will have a meaning only because of its analogy to one or more conventional languages and its obvious derivation from them. So travelers from one religion to another, people who have lost their spiritual nationality, may often retain a neutral and confused residuum of belief which they may egregiously regard as the essence of all religions, so little may they remember the graciousness and naturalness of that ancestral accent which a perfect religion should have. Yet a moment's probing of the conceptions surviving in such minds will show them to be nothing but vestiges of all beliefs, creases which thought, even if emptied of all dogmatic tenets, has not been able to smooth away at its first unfolding. Later generations, if they have any religion at all, will be found either to revert to ancient authority or to attach themselves spontaneously to something wholly novel and immensely positive, to some faith promulgated by a fresh genius and passionately embraced by a converted people. Thus, every living and healthy religion has a marked idiosyncrasy. Its power consists in its special and surprising message and in the bias which that revelation gives to life. The vistas which it opens and the mysteries it propounds are another world to live in, and another world to live in, whether we expect ever to pass wholly into it or no, is what we mean by having a religion. What relation, then, does this great business of the soul, which we call religion, bear to the life of reason? That the relation between the two is close seems clear from several circumstances. The life of reason is the seat of all ultimate values. Now, the history of mankind will show us that whenever spirits at once lofty and intense have seemed to attain their highest joys, they have envisaged and attained them in religion. Religion would therefore seem to be a vehicle or factor in rational life, since the ends of rational life are attained by it. Moreover, the life of reason is an ideal to which everything in the world should be subordinated. It establishes lines of moral cleavage everywhere and makes right eternally different from wrong. Religion does the same thing. It makes absolute moral decisions. It sanctions, unifies, and transforms ethics. Religion thus exercises a function of the life of reason. And further function, which is common to both, is that of emancipating man from his personal limitations. In different ways, religions promise to transfer the soul to better conditions. A supernaturally favored kingdom is to be established for posterity upon earth, or for all the faithful in heaven, or the soul is to be freed by repeated purgations from all taint and sorrow, or it is to be lost in the absolute, or it is to become an influence or an object of adoration in the places it once haunted, or wherever the activities it once loved may be carried on by future generations of its kindred. Now reason in its way lays before us all these possibilities. It points to common objects, political and intellectual, in which an individual may lose what is mortal and accidental in himself, and immortalize what is rational and human. It teaches us how sweet and fortunate death may be to those whose spirit can still live in their country and in their ideas. It reveals the radiating effects of action and the eternal objects of thought.
Yet the difference in tone and language must strike us so soon as it is philosophy that speaks. That change should remind us that even if the function of religion and that of reason coincide, this function is performed in the two cases by very different organs. Religions are many, reason one. Religion consists of conscious ideas, hopes, enthusiasms, and objects of worship. It operates by grace and flourished by prayer. Reason, on the other hand, is a mere principle or potential order on which, indeed, we may come to reflect, but which exists in us ideally only, without variation or stress of any kind. We conform or do not conform to it. It does not urge or chide us, nor call for any emotions on our part other than those naturally aroused by the various objects which it unfolds in their true nature and proportion. Religion brings some order into life by weighting it with new materials. Reason adds to the natural materials only the perfect order which it introduces to them. Rationality is nothing but a form, an ideal constitution which experience may more or less embody. Religion is a part of experience itself, a mass of sentiments and ideas. The one is an inviolate principle. The other is a changing and struggling force. And yet this struggling and changing force of religion seems to direct man towards something eternal. It seems to make for an ultimate harmony within the soul and for an ultimate harmony between the soul and all the soul depends upon. So that religion, in its intent, is a more conscious and direct pursuit of the life of reason than is society, science, or art. For these approach and fill out the ideal life tentatively and piecemeal, hardly regarding the goal or caring for the ultimate justification of their instinctive aims. Religion also has an instinctive and blind side and bubbles up in all manner of chance practices and intuitions. Soon, however, it feels its way toward the heart of things, and from whatever quarter it may come, veers in the direction of the ultimate. Nevertheless, we must confess that this religious pursuit of the life of reason has been singularly abortive. Those within the pale of each religion may prevail upon themselves to express satisfaction with its results, thanks to a fond partiality in reading the past and generous drafts of hope for the future, but anyone regarding the various religions at once and comparing their achievements with what reason requires must feel how terrible is the disappointment which they have, one and all, prepared for mankind. Their chief anxiety has been to offer imaginary remedies for mortal ills, some of which are incurable essentially, while others might have been cured by well-directed effort. The Greek oracles, for instance, pretended to heal our natural ignorance, which has its appropriate though difficult cure, while the Christian vision of heaven pretended to be an antidote to our natural death, the inevitable correlate of birth and of a changing and conditioned existence. By methods of this sort, little can be done for the real betterment of life. To confuse intelligence and dislocate sentiment by gratuitous fictions is a short-sighted way of pursuing happiness. Nature is soon avenged. An unhealthy exultation and a one-sided morality have to be followed by regrettable reactions. When these come, the real rewards of life may seem vain to a relaxed vitality, and the very name of virtue may irritate young spirits untrained in any natural excellence. Thus, religion too often debauches the morality it comes to sanction.
and impedes the science it ought to fulfill. What is the secret of this ineptitude? Why does religion, so near to rationality in its purpose, fall so far short of it in its texture and in its results? The answer is easy. Religion pursues rationality through the imagination. When it explains events or assigns causes, it gives imaginative substitute for science. When it gives precepts, insinuates ideals or remolds aspiration. It is an imaginative substitute for wisdom. I mean for the deliberate and impartial pursuit of all good. The conditions and the aims of life are both represented in religion poetically, but this poetry tends to arrogate to itself literal truth and moral authority, neither of which it possesses. Hence the depth and importance of religion become intelligible no less than its contradictions and practical disasters. Its object is the same as that of reason, but its method is to proceed by intuition and by unchecked poetical conceits. These are repeated and vulgarized in proportion to their original fineness and significance, till they pass for reports of objective truth and come to constitute a world of faith, superposed upon the world of experience and regarded as materially enveloping it, if not in space, at least in time and in existence. The only truth of religion comes from its interpretation of life, from its symbolic rendering of that moral experience which it springs out of and which it seeks to elucidate. Its falsehood comes from the insidious misunderstanding which clings to it, to the effect that these poetic conceptions are not merely representations of experience as it is or should be, but are rather information about experience or reality elsewhere, an experience and reality which, strangely enough, supply just the defects betrayed by reality and experiences here. Thus religion has the same original relation to life that poetry has, only poetry, which never pretends to literal validity, adds a pure value to existence, the value of a liberal imaginative exercise. The poetic value of religion would initially be greater than that of poetry itself because religion deals with higher and more practical themes, with sides of life which are in greater need of some imaginative touch and ideal interpretation than are those pleasant or pompous things which ordinary poetry dwells upon. But this initial advantage is neutralized in part by the abuse to which religion is subject whenever its symbolic rightness is taken for scientific truth. Like poetry, it improves the world only by imagining it improved, but not content with making this addition to the mind's furniture, an addition which might be useful and ennobling, it thinks to confer a more radical benefit by persuading mankind that, in spite of appearances, the world is really such as that rather arbitrary idealization has painted it. This spurious satisfaction is naturally the prelude to many a disappointment, and the soul has infinite trouble to emerge again from the artificial problems and sentiments into which it is thus plunged. The value of religion becomes equivocal. Religion remains an imaginative achievement, a symbolic representation of moral reality, which may have a most important function in vitalizing the mind and in transmitting, by way of parables, the lessons of experience. But it becomes, at the same time, a continuous incidental deception. And this deception, in proportion as it strenuously is denied to be such, can work indefinite harm in the world and in the conscience. 
On the whole, however, religion should not be conceived as having taken the place of anything better, but rather as having come to relieve situations which, but for its presence, would have been infinitely worse. In the thick of active life, or in the monotony of practical slavery, there's more need to stimulate fancy than to control it. Natural instinct is not much disturbed in the human brain by what may happen in that thin superstratum of ideas which commonly overlays it. We must not blame religion for preventing the development of a moral and natural science, which at any rate would seldom have appeared. We must rather thank it for the sensibility, the reverence, the speculative insight which it has introduced into the world. We may therefore proceed to analyze the significance and the function which religion has had in its different stages, and without disguising or in the least condoning its confusion with literal truth, we may allow ourselves to enter as sympathetically as possible into its various conceptions and emotions. They have made up the inner life of many sages and of all those who without great genius and learning have lived steadfastly in the spirit. The feeling of reverence should itself be treated with reverence, although not at a sacrifice of truth, with which alone, in the end, reverence is compatible. Nor have we any reason to be intolerant of the partialities and contradictions which religions display. Were we dealing with a science, such contradictions would have to be instantly solved and removed, but when we are concerned with the poetic interpretation of experience, contradiction means only variety, and variety means spontaneity, wealth of resource, and a nearer approach to total adequacy. If we hope to gain any understanding of these matters, we must begin by taking them out of the heated and fanatical atmosphere in which the Hebrew tradition has enveloped them. The Jews had no philosophy, and when their national traditions came to be theoretically explicated and justified, they were made to issue in a puerile scholasticism and a rabid intolerance. The question of monotheism, for instance, was a terrible question to the Jews. Idolatry did not consist in worshiping a god who, not being ideal, might be unworthy of worship, but rather in recognizing other gods than the one worshipped in Jerusalem. To the Greeks, on the contrary, whose philosophy was enlightened and ingenuous, monotheism and polytheism seemed perfectly innocent and compatible. To say God or the gods was only to use different expressions for the same influence, now viewed in its abstract unity and correlation with all existence, now viewed in its various manifestations in moral life, in nature, or in history. So that what in Plato, Aristotle, and the Stoics meets us at every step, the combination of monotheism with polytheism, is no contradiction, but merely an intelligent variation of phrase to indicate various aspects or functions in physical and moral things. When religion appears to us in this light, its contradictions and controversies lose all their bitterness. Each doctrine will simply represent the moral plane on which they live and have devised or adopted it. Religions will thus be better or worse, never true or false. We shall be able to lead ourselves to each in turn and seek to draw from it the secret of its interpretation. End of How Religion May Be an Embodiment of Reason by George Sanayana